This show is sponsored by Electronium. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. Happy Friday, everyone. What is up? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching to Untold Stories, where twice a week I get to dive deep with some of the coolest people, not just in our industry, but in the whole entire world, not just my guest Spencer Bogart today, but I get to interview and talk to heads of states, vice premiers, and ask them like, why do you guys like cryptocurrency? What are you What are you actually doing here? Uh, I started uh, listening to my friend Charles Hoskinson's private Facebook uh, live streams. And so what I started, every time he starts off, it's like snowing in the background. And it'll be like, hey, you're watching Charles Hoskinson, always warm, always sunny Colorado. And it's never warm, never sunny, but it's Colorado. So I'm saying, you know, you're listening to Untold Stories coming from sunny Sarasota, Florida, but it's actually freezing outside. It's like not really freezing, but it's cold for Florida. I'm wearing pants today. I have to bring out my real shoes. People, no. yeah, I know people were like, you're the flip-flop man. You're wearing shoes today. What's going on? Spencer, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me. You know, I, compared to heads of state and everyone, I'm a lot less cool than that. But uh, no, you're cooler. To chat with you today. <laughs> well, you're doing coffee and crypto today. I'm doing cookies and crypto. Just eating my Love chocolate it. chip cookie. Love it. I have a workout later, so I'm allowed. All right. So you're the general partner at Blockchain Capital. Last time we got to hung out, got to hang out. It was pre-COVID in California. And Blockchain Capital, I've had some of your other partners on the show. You guys are known as the VC firm in the space, kind of like the pioneers of venture funding, of, of uh, getting involved in not just companies and different projects, but also back in, you know, a few years ago, launching your own security token and really like one of the first ones to do it, a net asset value token, which was which was so years early, by the way, like years early. And you get to invest in and get involved in really cool things like AI and VR and the crossroads between crypto and all those different things. You got your start at Needham and Company. And what was, and this is kind of where my first question is. I remember when you were at Needham before you were, did I pronounce that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Because I, sometimes I don't want to sound stupid. When you mm -hmm. got your start there, um, you were tweeting a lot. And you were tweeting a lot about, about Bitcoin and about the industry as a whole, very critical, very critically, but also unbiased. And I think you were one of the first people that I really followed that came from this upper finance world. I think you guys, your company was involved in like 700 IPOs or something like that, some crazy number, $200 billion in transactions. But here you are, like with all this financial data and all this corporate data and macro data and your understanding of how things all work together. Here you are tweeting about Bitcoin. And that's what really struck me the first time I, I followed you. Yeah, that, that's funny. Well, I appreciate that. You know, that makes it seem more like Machiavellian and master planning here than, than I, I can really take credit for. You know, it was just um, someone working on Wall Street and had, you know, like many people got bit by the Bitcoin bug. And, you know, next thing you know, it starts to consume you. Um, so the, the only way to scratch that itch was to start um, publishing professionally. Um, so start writing research in the space. And, and you were putting out proper research reports. This was uh, pre like Masari, pre The Block, pre Coindesk, didn't even have a research department. What was that like putting out these research reports? How, how did, you know, when you're putting out those types, it's like writing a PhD thesis, PhD thesis every month, right? How would you 
what was the what would be the process of formulating a concept or something? Were you trying to theorize or prove your own wanting Bitcoin to be everything that you thought it was? Yeah. So it's definitely an experience. So, you know, to be clear, maybe a little bit of background for, for listeners here. So was doing sell-side equity research at Needham. So that means, you know, you're covering one to two dozen different companies in a particular sector. In my case, I was covering uh, SaaS, so software as a service companies and internet companies. Um, so people like LinkedIn, Salesforce, et cetera, um, which isn't totally far afield from crypto and blockchain, but it's also not right down the middle either. Um, you know, crypto always this weird blend of kind of cross industries. Um, but when you're publishing research, it's going out to a broad swath of buy side clients. So these are investment managers that are picking up these reports and, you know, kind of picking them apart. Um, they're not necessarily picking up any of these research reports and saying like, oh, great, they said to go ahead and, and buy LinkedIn stocks. So now I'm going to do that. Um, it's more of, okay, well, what did they like? What didn't they like? And then having subsequent conversations kind of talking through the thesis. Um, so the fun thing about publishing Bitcoin research back in 2016 was that everyone was dismissive. Um, and I think, you know, something that everybody appreciates is getting critical feedback. And so being able to publish Bitcoin research to a wide swath of um, really smart investment managers and then having them call me up and tell me, listen, I think you've lost the plot here. Um, you might be a little bit crazy. Let, let's talk about Bitcoin. Let's talk about why you're wrong about it. Um, was a great way to kind of, you know, really strengthen the thesis and really understand like, what are some of the weak points? Um, and, and then what are the points that really resonate? You know, back then there weren't a whole lot of points that resonate, but it is funny over the past, especially over the past six months, but really over the past few years to watch people really change their views and, and you know, get engaged with the space. What were some of those weak points that people would uh, like the first ones they would, sometimes you'd wonder if they even read the report because some of their weak points were these things that they heard or read, or, you know, I heard Bitcoin got hacked the other day, things like that. that that's exactly it. They were usually, honestly, they're all the items that, and, and I love this little piece of merchandise is the, um, the FUD dice that Nick Carter has. Um, oh, I got to Google um, that. Oh, I think yeah. I heard of his FUD dice. I need to get that for Christmas for people. They are so good. Like, it's just the best thing because oh, they <laughs> sell them. It, yeah. And it's such a subtle little flex because someone brings up like, oh, 51% attack or, you know, anonymous founder. And you can just sit there and say, oh, hold on here, roll the FUD dice. And so it's a really subtle way to tell people like, listen, your criticism has been so widely dispelled that we actually have them printed on, on dice now. Um, so I love that, that little piece. I love that the Castle Island crew put that together. Yeah, I'm actually... I'm buying FUD dice and also a bunch of like Bitcoin stickers on the Lightning on the on, on the uh, Lightning Network website where you can do some shopping, which yeah. is which is really cool. And and some of those FUD like doesn't scale. And I'm just reading like these are real arguments that I still hear. And so you know, when you say something like doesn't scale, you automatically when someone says that you automatically have a prejudgment of them because they're not saying it can't scale right now, or it doesn't have the ability to scale, or it's not built in, you know, all these, but it's like, it doesn't scale. It's like saying phone networks can't scale. You just, it's a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like a, shows like a, ignorance. I don't know. Ignorance or something like that. Yeah. Well, it's just short-sighted, right? It's like looking at, okay, what is the current state and not understanding what is the trajectory here? That's part of the thing that gets me really excited about the space is like, this is all software. The ability of what we can do with software in terms of improving it over time is is extraordinary. Um, and so to look at something, you know, to look at the internet in 99 and say there's no way you'll be able to stream video and that you and I can have a 
you know, high def video recording over the internet is really just short sighted. And I think that would have been excusable in the early days of the internet because we didn't have a strong precedent, maybe. Um, now, when you're looking at crypto to not take lessons from, from some of the examples we have with, with internet communications is really short-sighted. Um, I, I agree with you, but I want to save like 2% because I feel like a lot of us are short-sighted, myself included. Even early on, I was short-sighted. And I feel like I'm still short-sighted because I, you know, we don't really know what this is and kind of why we do the show is we're trying to figure this all out, right? But one of the things, uh, and I like, you know, when you go to your Twitter, you have this as a pinned tweet and you have understanding Bitcoin's value that's so important. I still struggle sometimes, sometimes with explaining like the value of this. And I'll tell you why, because I, I, I figured out recently why it's so difficult for people to grasp this. And the reason is, and I'd like for you to explain it to me better because you have a better understanding of economics than I, but essentially the, the whole concept and definition of money, everything that we're thinking about of money, when you have like physical paper, which is what we physically manifest as money, everything about money, like, sorry, the physical paper is a misnomer. Like it's not, it shouldn't be the, the concept of having a debt on a piece of paper that you can transfer from one person to another. That's not really what money is. Money, I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that our understanding as human beings, as Americans or global citizens or whatever you want to say, you know, we were brought up in school. Our understanding of money is so warped and wrong that it's so difficult to understand Bitcoin for some people, myself included early on, because our understanding of money is so wrong. So really, like my question to you is, what is what was money meant, supposed to meant to be, or uh, what is money essentially? Probably that's a, that's a deep question right there. I'm not sure I'm qualified to answer that, that level of question. Um, I, I mean, I could take my own stabs at it, but, but that is something that I think reasonable people will debate and come up with different, de- different definitions of what money is. Um, and, and to be honest, we've seen it take so many different forms over time that all of those different views can be valid at the same time. Um, but you're right, though, that I mean, listen, I think everyone's on the same kind of learning curve with, you know, what is crypto? What is Bitcoin? I think as time goes by, we get more clarity as to where these things are most effective and, and where they add the most value. Um, c- certainly, I mean, I, you know, you mentioned that, that you felt short sighted early on. I, I absolutely did. You know, I mean, you were involved much earlier than I was. I was di- I was on the initially dismissive camp of, listen, I think yeah. this is really cool. I want to buy a little bit just to try it, but I expect that it's going to fail. Right, like definitely didn't appreciate the robustness of of crypto as a whole and Bitcoin in particular. What is that robustness? That's something that I've not been able to really put my finger on as well. This industry and cryptocurrency as a whole has continued to grow out of the mistakes that it, it learns. It's like one of those uh, a, a virus that can self-replicate or not self-replicate can can fix itself or learn from its own problems and continue to grow. So you know, you look at the ICO world, we said, people said that out of this whole, this whole like negativity that, that, that was pinned, even if one out of every 10 people stick around or one out of every 50 companies are legitimate, that will be the future of this industry. And everyone who said that was right, here we are again. So it's like, you're constantly uh, evolving and growing. My question to you is when you first got involved in blockchain capital, 
there were all these uh, early portfolio companies that uh, were, were invested in and then you guys started investing in and in the ver- various early stages. Where are so, some of those companies now? And do crypto companies have to always keep in the back of their head their, their potentiality of having to pivot because this industry moves so fast? Oh, for sure. Like definitely with early stage companies, you know, there's somewhat of an expectation, you know, the earlier, the more likely that you're going to shift a little bit. Um, and so hence the reason why the earlier the stage the company is, the more important that the founders are there, right? To be able to find what is that opportunity. I mean, you know this from, from your own experience as an early stage founder that like you, you've got to roll with the punches and whatever you set out to originally do, you might be very close to that, but you'll likely have to make at least some minor adjustments to there. Um, yes. So we've certainly seen companies go through quite a bit of growth and, and shifts. I mean, even the companies that are relatively still aligned with their original mission, so companies like Coinbase and Kraken, even they have you know, made adjustments that I'm sure that they would not have foreseen at, at the outset. Kraken's a great example. How has Jesse been able to like follow his own personal like uh, life principles and lead the company? Because when you think about Kraken, you think of like Jesse and you think of like how he runs the company internally, externally, and, and the people that are involved in that. It's so hard, especially when you've raised money and have to bow to regulators all the time. Yeah, 100%. I mean... You know, I think that that everyone's kind of doing the, the the best they can. Definitely have a lot of respect for for what Jesse and the Kraken team has been able to build. Um, and absolutely one of those people, I'd say that that has absolutely stuck true to to his own values. What have you been working on lately? <laughs> All sorts of things. It turns out turns out venture capital is a lot of work, man. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so right now we're kind of firing on on all cylinders. So it's. Um, what does know, a VC all... do before you yeah. get into to what you're doing? Yeah. I think a lot of people don't really understand that. Yeah, sure. So the obvious part that I think most people are familiar with is that we do invest in companies. So we invest in, in companies for us, that's particularly early stage. So seed and series A is really our bread and butter. Um, but we will invest kind of across the life cycle of companies. So we did lead um, a series B, for example, for Anchorage. Um, but that's not it. So, you know, aside from deploying capital, we have to raise capital as well. Um, so, you know, that's something that I think most founders don't imagine. They imagine us just kind of you know, with our feet kicked up on a desk, waiting, like a rotating set of pitches coming through and just deciding. Yeah, you have the money in the bank account ready to go. Yeah, exactly. But we have to go out and do the same thing. So really, you sit on both sides of the table. They're like, you're not familiar with being on the other side of the table and asking to raise money. Um, but we are. Um, so that's been a fun shift over the past couple of years is really seeing the massive shift in terms of the investor base of our funds, you know, really graduating from what was originally basically just founders in the industry to then kind of a set of um, you know, quirky oddballs and, and high net worth individuals to, you know, a point today where we work with um, large publicly traded companies, um, endowments, foundations, large family offices, you know, the, the whole swath of institutional investors. It's crazy. I see uh, right here, just came up on my feed, how American investors are gobbling up booming Bitcoin. The, the supply of Bitcoin and that supply squeeze is something that I wanted to talk to you about a little bit later in the episode. But it's funny you mentioned on the VC side of things, because for the first time in my life, my adult life, 10 years of being in Bitcoin, I'm going to invest in a VC fund. I've, I feel nice. like I missed out, right? So yeah. uh, I, I know the fund, they've had a few funds already. They've been around the space a very long time. I know them very well. Um, and, but I'm still very new to VC investing. And I really, I'm like a child. I need my hand held. Yeah. So uh, I got all the paperwork together and ready to go. And I was like, I said, okay, when do you need me to like wire this money? 
And I'm assuming that the money's just going to sit in the account for like two years while it's being. He said, no, that's not how it works, Charlie. Do you think that's how it works? I said, I don't know. He said, no, we have a single capital calling. When we're ready to invest in the company, we all, we do the capital call. And also, you know, like you're going to be involved in the the telegram rooms and, and, and the chatting of the different companies that were and all the other fun people. I said, oh, I didn't realize VC, it's so active uh, and it's, it's cool and it's fun, but also a little bit scary. You yeah, no, hundred percent. That's definitely one that, that even a lot of the investors coming into our funds don't necessarily realize. They assume that they're contributing all their capital up front. Yeah. Um, and people do handle that different ways. Like some funds will do it, as you said, of on an investment by investment basis, they'll call the capital necessary. Um, in our case, what we do is we call 25% of the capital at a time. So we spread it out into four chunks. And that's really just because... Um, oh, I like that better. Well, it just makes it a little bit easier because a lot of our investors, they don't want to have to handle a wire for every single investment that we're going to make, right? So handling 100 or 40 different capital calls is not really their ideal scenario. Um, but they also don't want to send all the capital up front. So kind of breaking it into four chunks is a nice you know, balance in the middle there. Uh, what are those investors doing with their money right now? Like, Where is the yield? Is there, is there yield anywhere? It's a good question. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, they're (laughs) for a lot of them. I mean, listen, for endowments foundations, they have like really diversified portfolios. So, you know, these are very steady as she goes kind of investors. Um, So, you know, venture as a whole is only going to be a small percentage of their total fund, right? They're owning public equities, they own debt, they own real estate, they, they do a little bit of everything. Private equity as a whole, even that won't be a very large percentage. And then venture capital is a small percentage of that. It's so interesting how uh, that whole underbelly works. When, what year do you think, what year or what time period do you think, and the answer could be really anything, do you think that the uh, uh, capital world of, of investing where you have these large family offices endowments that put money into funds like yours and then you invest in the, in the companies uh, and some of the other funds as well, what year do you think those they got comfortable, those like larger funds that invest in your funds or those family offices or individual people. What year do you think they all got comfortable where it's like, you don't have to convince them of cryptocurrency anymore. Now it's like they're coming to you because they want to invest in cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's definitely been a big shift. I'd say even very recently, there's been a major turning of the tide there. Wow, that's how early we are. That's crazy. It it is. No, it is. It's totally crazy. I mean, some of those investors definitely, you know, were... Uh, invested in our last fund. So we did a first close on that in Q4 of 2017. So, you know, rewinding three years ago, we did have institutional investors participating. Um, But it did take some convincing. It took them, you know, getting comfortable. And in a lot of cases, you know, they came in saying, listen, I want early stage picks and shovels exposure. I don't know if I actually want to own any crypto. Whereas today, even people who we've had conversations with over the past few years, and they used to say, listen, if you include any kind of crypto assets in your funds, it's a non-starter for us. Like we're not even going to consider it. And then now they're coming back and saying, not only is it okay, we actually really like it now. Um, so that's been a massive shift, really specifically in the past, I'd say six, seven months. Who are the holdouts? Are there holdouts? <laughs> There's always holdouts. Um, and I think that's natural. Like I, I wouldn't want to see everyone flip at once, right? I mean, I think this is a yeah. learning curve and I think that the industry continues to prove itself over time. Um, I wouldn't want to see just a you know tidal wave of capital into the space. It's nice that it kind of ratchets up over time. 
I'm really excited when I get to talk about projects and companies that have been around since the early days of crypto and supporting those projects. In many parts of the world, banking services simply haven't advanced at the same rate as the adoptions of smartphones and the internet. Uh, Africa, Southeast Asia, it's they're skipping entire financial services over, they're skipping people over, and they're not even building out that infrastructure until cryptocurrency. We all know this, we've been hearing about it for so long. Electronium, a company based in the UK, decided to build an entire ecosystem based off of financial inclusion, empowering people, getting them involved, not just by working and by earning, but also by spending and being part of that community. Anytask.com is a company that's powered by Electronium, over half a million users, and you have the ability to do all these freelance projects, earn money, earn their tokens, and not only just earn ETN, but also be able to spend it on all these different things. What's what's crazy is that, and what's crazy good is that it's a, any task is attracting not just crypto people, but actual talented freelancers that are willing to take ETN in return for doing all this work. It, it's literally created this whole uh, ecosystem. And the thing is, it's not been just like a new novel idea. It's been around for a while. They're doing it. They're growing every single day. They're doing uh, millions of dollars in transactions. You got thousands and thousands of different people on the platform offering different services. And you should go check it out. It's it's so cool. The staff are great. The people are great. Everyone on the platform is so cool. Uh, according to ETN Everywhere, their official merchant directory, uh, ETN can be spent in over, I think it's 2,000 physical locations and online locations worldwide. You're talking about uh, in 140 countries, mobile airtime, um, shops, TVs, all these different things, not just being able to spend it. And so check them out, Electronium, anytasks.com, support my sponsors. They're so cool. And I'm excited for you guys to check it out. I asked you earlier what you were working on before we got into the VC, but yeah. I think I want to rephrase that question. Yeah. What are you personally studying or hypothesizing yeah. or, or wanting to learn more about as it related to crypto? So, you know, one, I guess, upside or downside, you know, in terms of, of uh, you know, doing venture as opposed to when I was doing equity research, when I was doing equity research, I had an opportunity to, you know, really spend a lot of time researching a topic, publishing, um, you know, strong investments report, investment reports around it. Um, today, we, you know, work with our entire research team. So there's 14 people at Blockchain Capital in total, um, about 10 on our investment team. Um, so, you know, it's, I have less time to directly drill in and spend a lot of time researching any subtopic. We do that as needed on, an, on a particular research topic, um, but it's largely working with our team. So a lot of my time today is actually oriented around supporting the companies that we've invested in. So as they go to do their next financing, it's making sure that we walk through you know, where their metrics at, are they at a point where they can do their next financing, who are the right investors depending on what they need. Like, Do they need to build an enterprise sales organization? Um, do they need someone with marketing prowess? Like, What kind of a partner are they looking for? And then trying to navigate those. So, it's really a lot of um, you know, kind of legwork behind the scenes of working with working with our companies. Um, but in terms of the research areas that are very recurrent and heavily discussed around our table, it's obviously DeFi. So that's been the the heaviest topic where you know you can continue to spend hours and hours and hours and still have a lot more to go. Mm. I completely agree with that. What are you personally 
before we get into DeFi, what are you personally studying though? What are you outside of your time at work? Because you have to love this industry. You have to love the culture and ideology to want to get up in the morning. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I would love to be studying a bunch of other topics outside. For me, most of my my free time is consumed by one, I have a, uh, a 13-month-old. So Congratulations. Care, thank you. Yeah. So taking care of him and then also just going through sci-fi books. So that's been the big binge recently. Oh, what are you it, reading? Let's see. So right now it's Starship Troopers. Um, I just finished Third Body Problem, um, loading up my... Uh, I should have kept a list audible. of... I stopped keeping lists of the books that I was reading, but I'm in the middle yeah. of Ken Follett's I had, prequel. I had to go through into the Kindle to go see like what it's been. Um, Dune was a, I felt like everyone had read Dune before and I was the only one in the world that hadn't read Dune. Um, so I, I went through that Dune. series. And then now that I've asked people, everyone says the same thing. They're like, oh no, I haven't read it either. Did um, you, so I don't know why I had that sense. Did you ever read the, the Riverworld trilogy, the books, the Riverworld book? No. By Philip Jose Farmer. So there's a, there's a bunch of them. In fact, there's one, two, three, there's more. They were written in the 1970s. And I found one of them. It was like a rattered, ratted old. I, I never liked sci-fi that much. Because yeah. I never found like the connection between sci-fi and the world that I lived, right? Same. And I remember in the prison library, I found this tattered old book called uh, To Your Scattered Bodies To Your Scattered Bodies Go. And it was the first book of the Riverworld series. And uh, this was my first real sci-fi book, if that's what you can call it. I feel like it's considered sci-fi if you Google it, Riverworld. And it was this crazy, this crazy story how after all humans die, they go in this river world and everyone's naked and, it's this, and there's this boat and you're living with Mark Twain. It's a crazy book. Yeah. And all the books were great. And then they, they made movies and everything, but a 1970s sci-fi. Awesome. So that's what I like, 1970s, like early sci-fi stuff. Before That's what it is. There, it's amazing how much of the early sci-fi work is you know, at least has some semblance of accuracy. And I agree. I used to be entirely like, I refused to listen to or read sci-fi growing up. Right. I was like, this is too removed from my real world. I want things that help me understand the world around me. Um, and I think it's really been working in tech and working in venture capital and working in crypto. that's made me understand that, listen, you need to really have an open mind as to like what might be possible in the future. And actually a lot of old sci-fi books are just fantastic for kind of imagining what future worlds might look like. I, it's, it's not just that, but it, it creates like a frame of reference of what can't be too, uh, yeah. as well, because you have all these things of what heaven may look like or hell may look like, but then you have to like think them through. There's like, uh, one thing that I took away from like my Jewish upbringing is I remember learning that if you, if in order to understand God and his ways, you would need to like be God. And that was like the cop out, I feel like, in order, in order for when you didn't understand something that was in the yeah. Bible. Yeah, of course you wouldn't understand. Yeah. Because <laughs> then you could be God. Yeah, <laughs> that is a perfect one. But I, I, you, did, you did learn a lot. Um, uh, I did learn a lot growing up in school, like how to like frame references and things like that. Um, are you familiar with the, this new thing that's been going on, the stablecoin law that they're trying to put out last minute? What's yeah. The Stable Act, yeah. Now, as far as I understand, the Stable Act is being done under the premise of like racial equality. What in God's name does cryptocurrency have to do with racial equality? We are the most like this. Our industry over the past nine and a half years of being around, we are like we are. We should be the shining city on the hill of what equality looks like. 
in terms of, and I don't have the exact st statistics, but you talk about an industry where it doesn't matter like the color of your skin, who you are, where you're from, your race, religion, your sexual preferences, anything. It doesn't, uh, not sexual, that's a terrible word to use. You're, um, you can't say that anymore. Not that you can say that. There's a, my editors have to remove that. That's a, <laughs> yeah. can't, uh, sexual preference is not a politically cor correct word anymore. Your orientation? No, because that implies that it's a preference, but really yeah. you're born with it. So yeah, yeah. it's not a preference. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I have to, I have to go and figure out the exact, I'm not a politically correct guy, but that's the one, that's, a, that is a word that I, that I think, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter. It's, anyways, yeah. but so what's the stable coin law? What the hell's going yeah. on? Yeah. So it's funny. So I take a lot of guidance here from, so our general counsel is, is a gentleman by the name of Joshua Rivera. Um, and he leads our, not just our internal, uh, you know, legal review, but also our regulatory affairs practice. So it's making sure that we understand everything regulators are talking about. Um, he is a very respectable and soft-spoken person most of the time. You know, he looked at this and said, this is just completely asinine. Like this is just so misguided in terms of what it's trying to do. Like a, a certainly a noble objective, but just completely nonsensical. Um, it just doesn't map over. Um, I agree that, listen, one of the things I love about our industry is that it is very much a meritocracy. Um, when people share great ideas... And by the way, you can just jump on crypto Twitter and start sharing research, start yeah. sharing research, start sharing great ideas. And then people tend to kind of surface those things and, and you can kind of build respect and you can be pseudonymous. Um, you know, you don't have to tie your real identity to it at all. Um, and I've seen quite a few people that now I've met in real life that, you know, online, no one really knows who they are. Um, and they could be of, of any race, religion, gender, anything else. Um, so it's great. I mean, that's something that we tried to actually mimic in our when when I scaled up our research team was recognizing that like, listen, I can't look at somebody's resume and know who's going to be good at this job because it is so cross disciplinary that what I really need to understand is do you have a good grasp of the industry? And can you reason towards what might happen in the future? So when we scaled up our research team, I actually totally anonymized the process by giving people um, a timed questionnaire. What I was trying to replicate was sitting across from them at a coffee and then just speedball asking them, um, you know, five questions really quickly and just taking quick answers to see, you know, without doing any research, just off yeah. the top of your head, what do you oh, think that's about cool. this? And so what, what happened was it turned out, you know, we had people from all sorts of different walks of life that provided the best answers. So I, I asked questions that didn't even have a right answer. Like what's better proof of stake or proof of work? Um, you know, uh, what's the future of decentralized exchanges? Um, things like that, where I didn't have a particular answer in mind. What I wanted to see was that someone understood the question and could reason towards an answer. Um, and it turned out that, you know, we had people from all sorts of different professions that, that ended up excelling at that. What if someone like didn't know the answer or even like, uh, not the answer, but someone didn't know how to even like go about finding the answer. Did you look for rational thinking or, or ways, you know, problem solving? Well, for one, I needed people that already had some grasp. Like if they didn't understand the question, then it probably wasn't going to be a good fit to begin with. Story, yeah. There were so many eager people. So like basically when we started hiring for that, I think that we opened up our application process for like 48 hours and there was like 250 applicants. So I closed it pretty quickly. Um, and then again, all, that questionnaire was timed. So people only had like two minutes to respond to each question. So they didn't have a chance to go and Google like, okay, what is proof of stake? Let me look it up really quickly and then formulate an answer. Um, so it had to be something they already knew off the top of their head. That's actually a brilliant way to do things. I should have well, done that. Well, that was great because then I could just look at the answers. I could just review them really quickly. I could have a sense like right away from reading the answers of like, 
okay, this person understands the industry and they have a reasonable path. I have no idea what's going to happen on those. I have no idea if proof of stake will be a massive success. But what I want to see is that someone can reason for it. That's a whole nother podcast, proof of work. Yeah, yeah, we won't go there right now. Yeah. I'm not taking that. I'm not taking that bite. Um, (laughs) But I did want to talk about the supply of Bitcoin. This is something that, uh, and it could be other coins too, uh, potentially Ethereum or some others down the road, but no one's talking about this at all. Like I, I don't see it anywhere. I try to talk about it a lot. I, I, and I don't have a lot of data to back this up, but it's a feeling. I have an intuition that there are more Bitcoins circulating than there are in existence. What I mean by that is most people that are buying and selling Bitcoin nowadays, uh, and especially in the past six months to a year, aren't buying it on, uh, aren't buying the actual asset. They're not buying the actual Bitcoin. Most people aren't even, think about this, to, you have to buy a Bitcoin from an exchange and withdraw it into your own wallet for me to consider you owning your own Bitcoin. So on that front of people buying it from exchanges that actually handle the asset, but most people are not buying it from these places. They're going to Cash App, Robinhood, PayPal now, Venmo eventually, millions of these places around the world, all these centralized DeFi places, which I use a few of them myself. All these places are guaranteeing a certain amount of Bitcoin, but at the end of the day, I don't think that there is, right now, if every single person who thinks they own Bitcoin tries to withdraw said Bitcoin in their own wallet, there would be a liquidity squeeze. There wouldn't be enough Bitcoin yet. Now, you're getting 900 Bitcoin a day that's being uh, mined right now, but that's not enough because that's being all bought up. It's a thousand Bitcoin, dude. I was doing more than a thousand Bitcoin a day in OTC d- deals back back in the day. It's not a lot of Bitcoin. What do you think? Am I wrong? Am I just tell me if I'm wrong? So, I so for one, I, I can't say for certain. Um, I me would neither. Say that's that's a, why I'm talking to you. It's a very similar, uh, you know, theory of like what happens in the gold market today, and I think it's very likely true in the gold market. Where if everyone who felt like they had price exposure to gold tried to actually take ownership of the gold, they'd find out that it wasn't all there. Um, in the case uh, price of price exposure, that's a good way to think about it. Yeah. And, you know, th- there is some nuance there. I mean, obviously, if you're, you know, have some derivatives exposure, you're not really expecting that you actually own the underline. Um, in the case of what exists today, I actually, if I had to wager, I would say that actually all of those companies that we just named, you know, from Cash App to Revolut um, to PayPal are, do actually have all of that Bitcoin. Um, because I do think they it's have impressive. it or do they know that they can get it? And they no, have I enough think money that, to I think get that it. They actually have it because I think it's a massive risk because I think those companies understand that Bitcoin can move up dramatically. And if they were ever caught, like if, you know, the classic saying of like, when the tide goes out, you can see who's not wearing a swimsuit. Mm-hmm. Like, I think everyone's aware of that risk. And that would be an existential risk to their business, which exists far beyond just Bitcoin for those companies. Right. So I think that they would not put themselves in a situation where they got caught not wearing a swimsuit and not actually holding Bitcoin. You're thinking of rational people and rational companies that are based in rational jurisdictions. But you and I know most people aren't. We're not talking about like countries just in the US or just in Western, you know, Western countries. I'm talking about the rest of the world, too. Well, keep in mind, though, for some of these companies as well, though, they're powered by um, some of them are powered by Paxos, for example, who's handling all of that. Right. So they're actually, you know, I think, you know, um, you know, the Paxos team. I didn't realize Paxos would actually become like, uh, I should have invested in them back then when I, 
uh, when I met those guys, I remember, oh, can I tell you a story? Yeah, please. I don't want to say which person in, in between Paxos and Itbit, but he's one of the C-level people. And um, he remember he sat me, he said, this was in the, this was like, I was like a month or two about to go into jail. And he sat me down on the floor of the, of the future office. Like they had the whole floor. Yeah. And he said, Charlie, when you get out, this is all going to be here. Like this is going to be offices. Bitcoin will be here. He said, how you handle yourself in the next year or two will be your future. And I never forgot that. Yeah. He, he, awesome. he, he's listening. He knows who you, you know who you are. That's awesome. I, I love the Paxos team. I think they've just done a phenomenal job um, really laying the groundwork for you know now just having a really awesome product offering. I mean, now you have every kind of fintech payments company, Neobank, kind of stepping in. And you know, Paxos' white label brokerage offering is awesome. Their white label stablecoin offering is great. Like That's exactly what people are looking for. I mean, for someone that wants to turn on these services to their users, there's a lot of hurdles to try to get over in terms of figuring out where do we source liquidity? How do we deal with custody? How do we think about regulatory licensing? Um, and the fact that Paxos has just kind of answered all those questions for them is phenomenal. I'd expect we'll see quite a few others roll out similar products in the near future. That uh, like underbelly infrastructure we've realized we're realizing is the most important part of 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 the space because when we have people come for the first time and they want to buy a Bitcoin or they want to get themselves involved in crypto, they want to play with a smart contract, they want to do something cool, they want to code, they want if the if the if the if the UI is not there, if the infrastructure is not there. If it's not solid flowing with trust and everything, then we're going to lose that first shot. Um, totally. You were mentioning DeFi earlier, and I kind of wanted to leave off with this. Uh, what is it about DeFi, you know, distributor decentralized finance that we're not seeing now that in a year from now or six months from now, we wish we realized this bigger picture? Because right now, like I can, I think I can see the big picture of how important DeFi is and how it's going to completely revolutionize all credit and capital markets. But is that it? What am I, what's going to happen between now and then? Yeah, fair enough. So it's a good question. Looking into the crystal ball, let, let me back up and say one thing of like, what, what gets me excited about what I'm seeing in DeFi? And it's really the explosive pace of innovation. I mean, anytime as a venture capitalist, you see an explosive pace of innovation, like run towards that because something interesting is going to come out of it. And I think to understand the pace of innovation that we're seeing in DeFi, we really have to zoom out and think about what is the historical model for innovation in financial products and services in traditional financial services, right? And I think that's really been a semi-walled garden, right? I mean, in order to launch a new financial service or a new financial product to a large audience, you're going to need to secure probably north of $10 million of funding. You're going to need to secure a couple oh, dozen sure. licenses. And even the few teams that are able to get over that hurdle, then they still have to build on this legacy outdated infrastructure, right? So I think those two factors coupled together have drastically lowered the pace of innovation relative to what we would otherwise see. And that's what gets me excited about DeFi because it like flips this entire model on its head from very few people can build on this crappy infrastructure to now anyone can build on ah. these open blockchain networks. And so, I mean, you know, at Blockchain Capital, we see everyone from successful repeat entrepreneurs that are building something in DeFi to you know, PhDs in a research lab at Stanford to a teenager on the other side of the world in their parents' basement that's building a new financial product or application, standing it up on global infrastructure, and then launching that to a global audience over as little as a long weekend. And of course, like when you have that kind of dynamic, it, to me, that resembles 
the uh, you know, early days of the internet when all of a sudden everyone can be a publisher, everyone can make a website. And in that kind of world where everyone can do this, you have to imagine that 99% of what people create is not going to be tremendously useful, right? Like 99.9% of websites are not useful. I don't want to say they're garbage, but like they're, they're not useful. Similarly, in DeFi, where everyone can kind of create a new financial product or application, most of them are not going to be very good, but a few of them are going to be huge. Right. And so I think we're in the early days of kind of figuring out what's going to be huge. How do we find the huge ones? How do we know which ones are worth it? Tune in next time to Untold Stories. I'm joking. (laughs) It's a good question. Honestly, like, yeah, we could spend like two hours discussing that. Throw shit at the Um, wall to see what sticks. I mean, what that's what I kind of do. I mean, for us, like, listen, for from an investment framework, we really think about three things. And it's really um, one of the associates on our team that helped kind of put this framework together, Alex Larson. Uh, we're looking for three things. One, who are the category leaders? Um, so for example, Uniswap is a category leader in decentralized exchange. Um, two, how do we get horizontal exposure to this trend? Right, like What is exposed to the entire rising tide of DeFi? So something like, for example, Nexus Mutual, which offers an insurance offering. Like, Listen, if people are going to deposit $16 billion worth of assets into these DeFi applications, you're going to want to insure against smart contract risk. Right, like All of this is software. So, you know, providing an insurance solution is a good example of horizontal exposure. Yeah, like Bitco so pivoted for, into that too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that, that, so, and then the third kind of major area would be white space. So like when we think about traditional capital markets, what exists in traditional capital markets that has not yet been created in DeFi? Um, so those are kind of the three major buckets that at least we, we look for. It's so cool how we can literally just recreate smart contractually. We can recreate everything in in the current like credit and capital markets and i was actually i'm such a nerd i was reading the i don't know why i just opened up the bitcoin white paper this morning and started reading it again i do that <laughs> i know that i'm so weird carrying around one why. of them in your back pocket like the no, little i should yeah well i just you know what it is every like six months i try to read it and see if i understand it better and yeah. there are a lot of aspects of it that i didn't understand like for example Dude, I'm such a nerd. Part 11 of the white paper talks about, I know by heart, part 11 of the white paper talks about uh, P&Q, which is essentially what it would take for uh, an attacker node to catch up to the honest node network. And Satoshi actually lays it out using, uh, using uh, an algorithm. He, he lays it out using a mathematical equation and he writes it out and he says, you know, like if a QZ, which represents an attacker nodes, and I don't want to get into it, but he, and so I literally on my whiteboard this morning, I'm drawing it out and, and I finally can say like, understand that. It took me nine and a half years to understand that one section of the Bitcoin white paper. So for those who don't think they fully understand this industry or, or they don't get what Bitcoin is, neither do I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're all figuring it out as we go. Like we know some things about it, but there's always figuring out what. But that's why we're still here. Yeah. yeah. Spencer, thank 100%. you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me, Charlie. This is, uh, uh, wait, uh, for those listeners who want to uh, read some of your readings, some of your older readings, uh, read some yeah. of your newer stuff, what's your Twitter? How can they find? Do you have a blog post? Yeah, sure. So my Twitter handle is creme de la crypto. Um, and then you can find more on both on our website at blockchaincapital.com. Um, we have a perspective section that includes our blog and then also publishing some stuff on, on Medium as well. Um, so you can find, I think my handle on there is bitcom21. Perfect. Um, 
So yeah, there's actually just published two days ago, some really interesting survey data showing how the general population is kind of adopting Bitcoin over time. So oh, I want to read that. Three years. So go ahead and check that out, Charlie. You'll enjoy that. I will. I'll actually post a link to that in the show notes. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. And, and thank you, everyone, for, for listening and watching Untold Stories. I should have said earlier that the show is powered by my best friends at the BlockWorks Group. They're a media and production company that I trust wholeheartedly, not only because they, they produce my show, but they also produce like 20 other shows of, of my good friends. So uh, go check them out. Go check out the other podcasts on their network, BlockWorksGroup.io. Spencer Bogart, Blockchain Capital, thank you so much for taking the time today and coming on Untold Stories. Thanks everyone for listening. Thanks, Charlie, for having me.